an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. All right, then. I hope it isn't too pedantic if I open with just a few words summarizing the last lecture. If you weren't here for that, don't worry. We'll be get, bit getting right into uh, the new issue tonight. But in the last lecture, we examined Newman's personalist account of how we reason. He says that there is not only formal reasoning, that is, demonstration and strict proof, but also informal reasoning. And that informal reasoning is an eminently personal act, whereas formal is, in a way, impersonal. He says further that we need informal reasoning in all concrete and especially historical subject matters. And hence, we need it when we inquire into or defend the truth of Christianity. We saw at the end that there is one weighty objection that can be made to Newman. Reason is tied to universal validity. What I hold in a rational way should be held by every other rational person. A rational argument is never my private possession, but is always the same for everyone. Formal reasoning easily fulfills this canon of rationality. For formal reasoning is clearly the same for all. But informal reasoning, being as personal as it is, seems not to be the same for all, and hence not really a work of reason. So we saw at the end of uh, that last lecture how Newman tries to preserve the rationality of informal reasoning. He admits that it does indeed lack the strong universal validity of formal reasoning, but that it nevertheless has sufficient universal validity to qualify as an authentic exercise of reason. And he concludes that the personal character of informal reasoning does not prevent it from being real reasoning, but rather makes it to be one very significant kind of reasoning. All right, that was the last lecture. And our question tonight for the final uh, lecture is this. How do we first come to know God, according to Newman, so as to be capable of a religious commitment? What is the primordial knowledge of God that awakens our religious existence? How do we come to life religiously, even before hearing of Christ and of the special revelation he gives us of the Father? And in particular, we ask, what is distinctly personalist about Newman's conception of our primordial religious knowledge? Now, I've got three main parts here. First, what this primordial religion is, religious knowledge is not, according to Newman. And then in a second section, what it is. And in a third, I face up to some challenging objections that can be raised to Newman. Now first, what it is not. 
Christians have sometimes tried to explain this most basic religious knowledge in terms of proofs and demonstrations. They have said that we can reason from the finite world to God as the cause and ground and governor of the world. Four of the five ways offered by St. Thomas Aquinas are of this kind. What has been traditionally called natural theology consists of such proofs of the existence of God along with demonstrations of the main attributes or names of God. Now while Newman does not reject this traditional approach, he also does not use it. His personalist way to God is something different. Now, if you heard some of the earlier lectures in this series, you will know right away why he sought something different, particularly relevant, is the first lecture in which we discussed the difference between real and notional apprehension. You see, even if all those proofs of natural theology are as rationally successful as they claim to be, they are, all of them, as Newman sees it, matters of formal inference, and as a result, they lead only to a notional apprehension of God. But Newman is looking for a primordial religious knowledge that involves a real apprehension of God. Sometimes Newman makes a contrast between the theological intellect and the religious imagination. It's an important polarity in Newman, the theological intellect, the religious imagination, and says that proofs and demonstrations are carried out by the theological intellect, whereas he is concerned with knowledge that appeals to the religious imagination. He is looking for a primordial knowledge of God, which is existential knowledge. That is, knowledge that engages the whole person, knowledge that we can live by, and not just knowledge that appeals mainly to the intellect. He says in a famous passage in his autobiography, um, a striking uh, passage, I am far from denying the real force of the arguments in proof of a God, but these do not warm me or enlighten me. They do not take away the winter of my desolation or make the buds unfold and the leaves grow within me and my moral being rejoice. And that quote, so Newman is looking for primordial religious knowledge that speaks to his heart and not only to his mind. Now in one place, Newman sketches out the monotheistic concept of God as elaborated in natural theology. Um, let me just quote a few lines. Newman says, I speak then of the God of the theist and of the Christian, a God who is numerically one, who is personal, the author, sustainer, and finisher of all things, the life of law and order, the moral governor, one who is supreme and sole, 
like himself, unlike all things besides himself, which are but his creatures, distinct from, independent of them all, one who is self-existing, absolutely infinite, who has ever been, ever will be, to whom nothing is past or future, who is all perfection and the fullness and archetype of every possible excellence, the truth itself, wisdom, love, justice, holiness, one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent, incomprehensible. End of that quote. And Newman thinks that God so understood in natural theology can be apprehended only notionally. And he explains why. He says, it is an ascent to this monotheistic God following upon acts of inference and other purely intellectual exercises. And it is an ascent to a large development of predicates correlative to each other or at least intimately connected together, drawn out as if on paper, as we might map a country which we had never seen. End of that quote. Now in those last words, map a country we've never seen, Newman vividly evokes notional apprehension. That's the apprehension of something that you aim at with your mental intention but do not really see. It is apprehension based more on concepts and definitions than on the intuitive presence of the reality apprehended. Newman longs for more than a notional apprehension of God. And so he goes on in that passage. So far is clear, but the question follows, can I attain to any more vivid ascent to the being of a God than that which is given merely to notions of the intellect? Can I enter with a personal knowledge into the circle of truths which make up that great thought? Can I rise to what I have called an imaginative apprehension of it? Can I believe as if I saw? End of that quote. It would seem, if ever, intuitive presence is beyond our reach, surely here in the case of God, who is a hidden God, and apprehensible only in faith. With him, you would think that at least in this life, nothing more than notional apprehension is possible. But Newman is not deterred, for he writes, yet I conceive a real ascent to God is possible, and I proceed to show how. Now, with that, we come to the end of the first section on what this um, uh, primordial religious knowledge is not, and we look at Newman's account of what it is. Newman claims that our primordial religious knowledge arises in our conscience. It is through our sense of being morally obliged that we can gain an apprehension of, and a real apprehension of, the reality of God. Newman says, were it not for this voice speaking so clearly in my conscience and my heart, I should be an atheist 
or a pantheist or a polytheist when I looked into the world. End of the quote. So, you see, Newman's way to God is not cosmological in the sense of starting with the external world and reasoning back to God as the cause of it. Newman's way to God passes through his interiority. But in order to understand how Newman finds God in conscience, we have to distinguish with him two different senses of conscience. This is all important for uh, following Newman. There is conscience in the sense of the mental power by which we understand right or wrong. For instance, it is by conscience in this sense that we understand that it's wrong to shed innocent blood, wrong to break your word, wrong to manipulate the truth for your convenience. And we often say that someone who understands all these things well has a well-formed conscience. But there is a more proper sense of conscience, and this is the one that mainly concerns Newman. Suppose I come into a particular situation in which I am tempted to distort the truth for my convenience or to break my word. And suppose that at this moment I have the strong sense that I must not yield to these temptations. I might say that my conscience warns me not to yield, that it commands me not to do wrong. The thought of doing wrong fills me with a certain shuddering. I realize that I will compromise myself in an ultimately serious way if I do the wrong that tempts me. Or suppose I have already yielded to the temptation, then I say, my conscience accuses me, and I am tormented knowing that it rightly accuses me. I feel that all deeper happiness in myself is now undermined. This is the second sense of conscience, and it is the one with which Newman works. Conscience in the first sense gives me general moral knowledge about the wrongness in principle of lying or breaking my word. We need this knowledge in order to have conscience in the second and more proper sense. For it is only when I see myself and my actions in the light of these moral universals that conscience in the more proper sense awakens. Conscience in this more proper sense involves not just moral universals, but also my concrete existence exposed to the light of the universals. It is in the setting of this encounter of myself with the moral law that the mysterious admonitions and accusations of conscience make themselves felt, Newman says. And hence it is that we are accustomed to speak of conscience as a voice. And moreover, a voice or the echo of a voice, imperative and constraining like no other dictate in the whole of our experience. End of that quote. So our understanding of moral universals, by contrast, 
has nothing about it that suggests an analogy with hearing a voice. So, to sum up, we have conscience as a moral sense, as that organ by which we come to know the natural moral law, and we have conscience as a dictate, Newman says, imperative and constraining, which challenges me in a definite situation. And as I say, it is conscience in this latter sense that especially concerns Newman. Now, Newman proceeds to, once he has the two kinds of conscience distinguished, he proceeds to examine the affections that go with conscience in the second sense. And he gives particular attention to the affections that make up a bad conscience, affections such as shame, fear, dread, sense of responsibility. But he also gives attention to the positive affections of awe and hope and peace of mind that make for a good conscience. <clears throat> he then argues that if we draw out the lines of meaning, so to say, contained in these affections proper to conscience, we can discern in them an interpersonal structure. That is, discern the fact that these affections of conscience really make sense only as felt vis-a-vis -vis some other person. And so he says conscience in the second sense always implies the recognition of a living object towards which it is directed. Inanimate things cannot stir our affections. These are correlative with persons. If, as is the case, we feel responsibility, are ashamed, are frightened at transgressing the voice of conscience, this implies that there is one to whom we are responsible, before whom we are ashamed, whose claims upon us we fear. These feelings in us are such as require for their exciting cause an intelligent being. We are not affectionate toward a stone, nor do we feel shame before a horse or a dog. Newman then suggests, as this important passage goes on, that the person to whom these affections of conscience refer cannot be a merely human person. He, he says, conscience excites all these painful emotions confusion, foreboding, self-condemnation. And on the other hand, it sheds upon us a deep peace, a sense of security, a resignation, and a hope which there is no sensible, no earthly object to elicit. The wicked flees when no one pursueth. Then why does he flee? Whence his terror? Who is it that he sees in solitude, in darkness, in the hidden chambers of his heart. If the cause of these emotions does not belong to the visible world, the object to which his perception is directed must be supernatural and divine. And thus, the phenomena of conscience as a dictate, that is in the second sense, avail 
to impress the imagination with the picture of a supreme governor, a judge, holy, just, powerful, all-seeing, and it is the creative principle of religion." End of quote. That's a very strong claim, Newman says, that he finds in the second sense of conscience the creative principle of religion. You see, this is the kind of knowledge he's been seeking all along, a knowledge that can engender religious existence and not just make us think about God, but really lead uh, an awakened religious life. So he wants to encounter God in a way that does not just appeal to the theological intellect, as we saw, but also to the religious imagination. And he thinks uh, that the religious imagination is never so strongly appealed to as in conscience. All right, now, above, we heard Newman asking, can I believe as if I saw? Uh, and he claims that through conscience I can indeed come to believe as if I saw. And he argues for this by way of drawing a very original analogy with sense perception. Let's try to understand that analogy by which Newman supports his uh, claim about the imaginative power, imaginative religious power of conscience. He says that there is a great gap, easily overlooked, between receiving sense impressions and discerning material individuals. And he makes his point like this. A person born blind who suddenly receives his sight, Newman says, at first perceives only a riot of color and shape, but not yet an ordered world containing distinct individuals standing in definite spatial relations to each other. What he, this person who's just recovered his sight, perceives at first is like what we perceive when we look at a tapestry on the wrong side, as Newman says. It takes some time and some work of interpretation to learn to see the tapestry of the external world on the right side. That is, it takes some time to find in the sense data those distinct individuals that exist around us and also to find the spatial relations in which they stand. Now, what interests Newman is that we do not infer to or reason our way to the material individuals. We do not, for example, reason that they are the only things that could have caused the sense data. We apprehend the individuals not indeed with the immediacy of the sense data, but still somehow directly. We apprehend these material individuals in the sense data, and in a way that forms a contrast with the act of deducing on the basis of the sense data that there must uh, be individuals out there. Now, Newman argues that 
the affections of conscience, in the second sense, subserve our apprehension of God rather like our sense experience subserves our apprehension of distinct, spatially situated individuals. We can recognize God in those affections of conscience somewhat like the way in which we can recognize distinct individuals in the sense data. Now this parallel that Newman draws between conscience and sense perception is at first surprising because material individuals seem to be present to us, whereas God seems hidden. But Newman um, argues with us about our hesitation um, by two points. First, showing that the material individuals are not as immediately present to us as one might think, certainly not as immediately present as the sense data themselves. And then secondly, by showing that the God of conscience is more present to us than one might have thought, since God is not deduced as the cause of the emotions of conscience, but is rather discerned as the veiled object of those emotions. Now, Newman may overshoot the mark somewhat when he argues that uh, God is as present to us through conscience as material individuals are present to us through the senses. But still he um, convincingly makes the point that there is, after all, a strong intuitive, non-deductive um, presence of God that can be gathered from these um, emotions or, or, or affections of conscience. So let me sum up. Here is the end of the second section of my paper. Um, sum up all that is distinctly personalist about Newman's way to God through conscience. And we can sum it up in terms of real apprehension. To go back to the first lecture, in conscience, we apprehend God, Newman says, not just abstractly, but imaginatively. Not just intellectually, but affectively. Not just from a distance, but with full personal engagement. Not just as an object of cognition, but in an interpersonal encounter. A merely notional apprehension of God is weak in a personalist respect, but this real apprehension of God in conscience is rich in this personalist respect. And now we come to the third and final part where I face up to two weighty objections that have been raised to Newman's approach to God through conscience. Uh, now, these may not be the objections most on your mind and in the discussion. Uh, if I haven't hit the ones that you thought of, 
bring them up, and we'll add that. Uh, but uh, here are two significant ones. And the first um, objection comes from Freud and is based on Freud's concept of the superego. Now, what Freud means is something like this, if I might simplify it for our purposes. He says that a child internalizes the commands and prohibitions of its parents. If the child is tempted to some wrongdoing, it hears the parental voice within itself, warning against the wrongdoing. If the child has already done some wrong, it hears the parental voice within itself, condemning the wrongdoing. This internalized parental voice is the Freudian superego. Now, it is a voice in many ways that resembles conscience in Newman's second sense. Besides being like a voice, it is full of higher authority. It commands and prohibits. It is highly personal, interpersonal. It could easily be taken for the voice of God. But Freud argues against any attempt to offer a religious reading of the superego. Freud argues that the voice heard in the superego is that of a merely human parent, not of a divine person. And he also argues that the process by which the parent gets internalized is an entirely natural psychological process and can be explained without bringing God into it. Now, Newman did not live long enough to hear of Freud's work in psychology. It would have been fascinating to see how Newman would have encountered Freud. But unfortunately, we are left to our own devices in defending Newman's religious reading of conscience against Freud. So uh, here is the general response, the, the general direction of my um, response to Freud. What he calls the superego is a subpersonal and commonly a depersonalized form of moral life. Whereas what Newman calls conscience is an eminently personal form of moral life. Therefore, Newman's conscience falls outside of the Freudian superego and cannot be reduced to it. The naturalistic explanation that Freud offers for the superego does not threaten conscience in the sense of Newman because it is an explanation for something entirely different from conscience. Well, let me unpack that rebuttal to Freud. And first, let me explain why the superego represents a subpersonal form of moral life. If we ask what this inter internalization of parental commands is that the child performs, we find that it is based 
on the child existing as a kind of moral extension of its parents. Consider how the child repeats the opinions of its parents. The child doesn't exactly agree with its parents. It just distinguishes very little between itself and its parents. The parental opinions are quite naturally the child's opinions. What other source of opinions should the child have? The child does not yet live very much as its own person with a mind of its own, but lives largely in its parents or as a kind of moral extension of them. When the child hears parental commands, it takes these into itself just as it takes the parents' opinions into itself. Or perhaps it's better to say that these parental commands occupy and inhabit the child, thus giving rise to the parent in the child, which is the superego of the child. Now, it's not difficult to see from this formation of the superego how it happens that the superego gets broken down and eventually destroyed in the child. This happens by the child coming into its own as person, gaining its own moral understanding, forming its own moral judgments, thinking for itself in moral matters. Then the child, now grown up morally speaking, becomes related to its parents, not as a moral extension of them, but as a fellow person, an equal of theirs in the kingdom of persons. If the child should agree with its parents on moral matters, this agreement has an entirely different meaning from the agreement based on the superego. For this new agreement is based on two distinct persons, whereas the agreement of the superego was based on one dominant person and the extension of himself into a dependent person. It may well be that this process of the child developing a moral mind of its own uh, begins much earlier than Freud thought. And it may be that from a very early age, the superego is always to some degree limited by some moral judgment of the child's own. Well, the point that we're after is this. Conscience in Newman's second sense is the very opposite of the superego with respect to moral maturity and being alive as person. And what we just said about the breakdown of the superego enables us to understand this. Remember that conscience in the second sense is based on conscience in the first sense. That is based on the person understanding right and wrong by means of what Newman calls the moral sense. But it is precisely through this understanding of one's own, of the moral law, that the person acquires a moral mind of his own and grows out of the sheltering cocoon, as it were, of the superego, um, as we were just discussing uh, in talking about the breakdown of the superego. This experience of one's distinct personhood is reinforced by 
the encounter with one's own concrete moral existence, which, as we saw, belongs to conscience in the proper sense. So this experience of one's distinct person in conscience gets an admirable uh, expression in Robert Bolt's play about the life and death of St. Thomas More, a man for all seasons. Thomas More feels bound in conscience for weighty moral reasons not to acquiesce in the second marriage of the king. And in one place he speaks about what he is experiencing in his conscience and says, I will not give in because I oppose it. I do, not my pride, not my spleen, nor any other of my appetites, but I do, I. And to say, end of the quote, to say I with this emphasis expresses a strong sense of personal selfhood. The person living at the level of the superego cannot say I like this. So to sum up, the objection of Freud looks threatening only as long as one thinks that conscience in human sense is nothing other than the Freudian superego. Once we see how fundamentally different conscience and superego are, Freud's naturalistic account of the superego does not touch Newman. Even assuming the validity of Freud's account, it does not interfere with Newman's claim to find deep religious significance in conscience. One cannot say that the God appearing in conscience is just an internalized parental voice, for this God respects me as person, letting me say I more emphatically than I can otherwise ever say it, whereas the internalized parental voice inhibits me as person, preventing me from saying I with emphasis. And by responding to Freud's objection, we're able to maybe bring out more fully the personalist content of Newman's approach to God through conscience. For there is not only, not only the personalism that lies in this personal encounter with God in conscience, which we've already discussed, but also the personalism that now emerges that lies in the fact that I come to life as person in this encounter. I come into my own as person in it. Perhaps we can even use this new personalist insight to reinforce Newman's sense of encountering God in conscience. That is, perhaps the depth of personal existence that I experience in conscience can only be experienced when it is the absolute and infinite that resonates in me. So that is my best attempt to deal with Freud. Now there's one other second objection, and that is the final uh, point in my presentation. This is an objection that comes from the Catholic theological tradition. Some of you know about the modernist crisis that absorbed the church in the early years 
of the 20th century. In 1907, Pope Pius X condemned modernism in his encyclical Pascendi. Many admirers of Newman at the time, remember Newman had been dead 17 years in 1907, many admirers of Newman at the time were shocked because some of the papal condemnations seemed to include certain teachings of Newman, especially his teachings on conscience. The Pope condemns in the encyclical those modernists who say, now here Pius X paraphrases uh, the modernists, in the religious sentiment one must recognize a kind of intuition of the heart which puts man in immediate contact with the very reality of God and infuses such a persuasion of God's existence both within and without man as to excel greatly any rational conviction. And of that quote. So Newman's appeal to conscience and the heart, his reservations about the traditional proofs and demonstrations would seem to place him among the modernists. He seems to be among those who are rebuked for not knowing, quoting Pius X again, that sentiment and experience alone when not enlightened and guided by reason, do not lead to the knowledge of God. End of that quote. What makes matters worse is that some of those modernists who were undeniably the target of the condemnations, the British Jesuit George Tyrrell, for instance, they cited Newman as an authority, as a thinker by whom they had been deeply influenced. So the objection we have to face is this. Newman's personalism, if it turns out to be a species of modernism marked by anti-intellectualism, is a very problematic part of his legacy and does not merit the warm reception that I have been giving it. All right, let me defend Newman against that suspicion of modernism. By the way, um, an Irish bishop at the time, uh, a Bishop O'Dwyer of Limerick in Ireland, wrote a long treatise uh, arguing that uh, the real mind of Newman was not that of the modernists at all. And he sent it to Pius X, who responded, you're right, Newman does not fall under uh, the condemnations of the encyclical. So there was that. Um, somehow official acknowledgement that Newman isn't meant. But there's still the problem of dealing with the appearance that he came close to being meant. So let me um, deal with the objection uh, by bringing up a quote uh, from Newman that sounds very different from everything we've heard in tonight's lecture. Um, in his work, The Idea of a University, Newman says, quote, the religious world, as it is styled, holds, generally speaking, that religion consists not in knowledge, but in feeling or sentiment. The old Catholic notion, which still lingers in the established church, was that faith was an intellectual act and its object truth 
and its result, knowledge. But in proportion, as the Lutheran leaven spread, it became fashionable to say that faith was not an acceptance of revealed doctrine, not an act of the intellect, but a feeling, an emotion, an affection. End of that quote. Now, this does not sound like the author who distanced himself from proofs for the existence of God on the grounds, as we heard above, that, quote again, these do not warm me or enlighten me. They do not take away the winter of my desolation or make the buds unfold and the leaves grow within me and my moral being rejoice. Here, Newman seems to be very dependent on religious feeling. Whereas, in the quote just given from the idea of a university, he sounds like Pope Pius X himself in Pascendi, deploring the modernist reliance on religious feeling. How do we put together these two different sides of Newman's thought? Now, I submit that the knowledge of God that Newman derives from conscience is a composition of real and notional apprehension. It's a composition of conceptual understanding and religious experience, of intellect and imagination. Now, in the Grammar of Ascent, from which I had mainly quoted tonight, Newman mainly stresses the real, the experiential, the imaginative. He thinks that these have been underdeveloped in Christian teaching and need to be brought to the fore. But he takes for granted the indispensable place of the notional and the intellectual. He takes for granted the God whose various names, remember the passage, one, infinite, omnipotent, eternal, etc. Uh, he takes that God for granted. And even though this concept of God is like the map of a country we have never seen, as he says, it is a map we cannot do without. Take, for example, the statement that God is one, not several, the so-called unicity of God. It's as a result of affirming this, that we're monotheists, not polytheists. But this truth about God is not clearly given in conscience. The higher authority experienced in conscience is veiled. Whether there is one or multiple centers of authority cannot be discerned. Newman takes for granted that this higher authority is centered in the one God of Christian monotheism. Newman interprets the imperativity of conscience uh, in the light of the unicity of God as propounded by Christian theology. In, in, in this and in many other ways, the religious imagination and the theological intellect collaborate in forming our apprehension of the God who speaks in conscience. Newman does not often reflect on this collaboration. He takes it for granted. And he sometimes refers to it, occasionally, 
as when he says, quote, religion cannot maintain its ground at all without theology. Sentiment, whether imaginative or emotional, falls back upon the intellect for its stay. And it is in this way that devotion falls back upon dogma, end of the quote. So this passage, I think, suffices to clear Newman of the suspicion of modernism, for it makes clear that he never played the religious imagination off against the theological intellect. And that, in fact, he sometimes, as in that last quote, recognizes that the theological intellect anchors and interprets uh, the religious imagination. Newman then quite agrees with Pius X, who wrote in Pascendi that, quote, sentiment and experience alone, when not enlightened and guided by reason, do not lead to the knowledge of God, end quote. Newman took indeed a particular interest in the religious imagination, but he never disparaged the theological intellect and always relied on it. Not only that, but he was himself a great theologian producing works like his Lectures on Justification. You see, and in that work, he doesn't try to solve by an appeal to the heart all the theological issues that he discusses concerning justification. So I conclude that the modernism condemned by Pius X is something entirely different from Newman's personalism. Uh, but that Newman's personalism was, let's say, vulnerable to seeming uh, uh, to be modernistic because of the particular attention that Newman gave to the religious imagination and to the lived encounter with God in conscience. So that is my attempt to deal with the second of the two objections. And I might just conclude not just this lecture, but the whole series of five with the very same words with which I opened the series, if you were here back for the first lecture. I opened with a line from the Newman scholar Edward Sillam, uh, and I close now with it. Sillam writes in one place that Newman, quote, stands at the threshold of the new age as a Christian Socrates, the pioneer of a new philosophy of the individual person and personal life. End of that quote, end of the lecture, end of the series. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.